Welcome to another episode of the Vikingology Podcast. The art and science of the Viking Age. Hey, you know what? I think it's our 25th episode. Wow. Happy anniversary. It's our, so we've, it's our... Sat, we've sat through 25 plus hours of this thing, huh? <laughs> More than that. Yeah, plus for sure. Um, it's our silver jubilee. And I think that's kind of interesting, you know, because Vikings liked silver, right? <laughs> yeah, we think. <laughs> we think, among amongst other things that they liked. Um, but yay, so today we're so happy, very happy, actually, to be able to speak with Dr. Claire Downham, all the way from Liverpool, right? Yeah. <laughs> so where it's the afternoon and where CJ and I are still waking up at 8 a.m. on the west coast of the United States. Um, but so, yeah, Claire, you are a senior lecturer in the Department of Irish Studies at the University of Liverpool. And I mean, for my money, you are it. You are at the top of the world's foremost expert of, of Vikings in Ireland. Um, and so this will be interesting because, you know, we haven't really had a chance to speak about, you know, honing in on on Ireland. Um, and you also are the author of numerous articles and people can go on your academia.edu site and find many of them to read. Um, and also CJ, I think you have an image of her books that we can share. Um, Viking Kings of Britain and Ireland, the dynasty of Ivar to AD 1014 and medieval Ireland AD 400 to 1500. Um, and then I, I read, are you working on a book about Viking Age Britain and Ireland for Penguin right now? Yeah, that's right. So that, that's going to be a, a source book uh, for Penguin Classics. Um, so, yeah, that, that's something that will be uh, appearing in a few years time, I think. So, yeah. Nice. Nice. OK, so there's the image for those of you who are watching. And for those of you who are just listening, we'll post images of those in the show notes so you can check them out and go buy them. Um, but yeah, so this is great. So welcome, welcome. And we're thrilled to have you here. And um, as you and I were corresponding before, I mean, I want to talk about Ireland and so does CJ, and, but we kind of meander a bit in this podcast. Yeah. And so we'll let right. it go where it goes. And I definitely have some other things too that I wanted to um, delve into a little bit um, with you. So um, anyway, I think I would I would start with uh, listening to another podcast uh, where you were a guest and I, my ears really perked up because they asked about your interest in medieval history and you said you viewed it like a puzzle. And yeah. that, that is exactly what I tell my students when they ask mm -hmm. me. It's, it's like a historian's job is to piece together the past. And it's like, it's like you have a puzzle and you know you don't have all the pieces, but somehow it doesn't stop you from trying to paint a picture of what the past was like. So, um, yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about that. And then why why the Irish puzzle in particular? Yeah, no, thank you for asking. I mean, it's lovely to talk about, you know, the things that interest me. Um, but um yeah, I think when I was when I was younger, when I was a kid, you know, I loved reading detective stories. I liked Sherlock Holmes. I used to hang out in my grandmother's attic where she had a lot of old books and there were lots of old lovely detective stories from like 19th and 20th century. And I think that um that journey of discovery, that the finding out what is unknown, um, is what really attracted me to to medieval history in particular. Uh, I, I loved history um always again um 
as a small child, uh, the, the benefit of spending time with my grandparents was that I got taken to castles and national trust properties and that it's kind of fired my youthful imagination. So the combination between a love of history and an interest in solving mysteries is really what led me uh, to pursue uh, medieval history. And uh, and then I kind of meandered into Irish history. So most often if you research Irish history, people think that you must have Irish ancestry. Um, I don't have any known Irish ancestry. Um, but I had the benefit of doing my master's degree in Cambridge. And I was actually interested in learning about Wales um, at the time. That was what I wanted to do. My mum was living in Wales at the time, got really interested in Welsh history. Uh, but my tutor, Maureen Hoynig, um, is uh, Irish. And she was like, well, that's great. That's brilliant. Yes, you can do all the Welsh stuff. But to contextualise Welsh, really good if you started learning the Irish stuff first. And I started learning the Irish material. I was just totally hooked. So interesting. And so much of Irish history is relatively under-researched. You know, if you compare it to early medieval England, we don't have a lot of source material. We've had a lot of people picking over their evidence. In early medieval Ireland, we've got an abundance of historical resources, but not that many people have looked at them. So uh, the excitement and thrill of being the first person to discover something or to find something that hasn't been looked at before, I think Irish history is the way to go. Yeah, I can identify with with uh, that when when you start studying something and people assume, oh, you must you must have that ancestry. Like like for me, uh, I fell into Vikings just by accident. My first my first goal was to look up you know the Celts in in Brittany. Now, what that in France, Western France, because uh, that's what we always talked about. Like you know, I remember my dad when I was growing up would say, you know, like you know, your mom and I are from the same people, but we're from different. You know, I was like, oh, that's weird. And then and then I, the Vikings just grabbed my attention because they showed up, they occupied Brittany, etc. So then I do the Vikings, and everybody's like, oh, you know, you must have this. I did the ancestry DNA, zero, zilch, nothing. Like <laughs> so now when people say, oh, you you uh you like you study the Vikings, you must have strong Scandinavian you know heritage. No, I'm French. <laughs> and it confuses people <laughs> i think that's that's quite apt actually though because you know they had that recent viking dna study uh that, that was published and they showed that people who are buried in what we call a viking grave with all those viking goods aren't necessarily scandinavian anyway so you know mm -hmm. uh culture and biology are, are not the same thing so um so i'm sure had you lived in the viking age you could go and be a viking and it wouldn't matter if you weren't having you know scandinavian ancestors they they would have let you join the ship anyway so yeah well we definitely will get into that because i certainly want to talk about that um that sort of whole ethnicity issue um because i think it's very interesting and i also have my students read something that you wrote about that um but I will weigh in on this and say, I'm very Scandinavian, even though I'm American. <laughs> my grandfather came from Sweden. My grandmother came from my great grandmother. I've been to her house in Dublin and my husband actually, I mean, this is weird that we're saying this because this morning I picked this cup for no reason, but my husband, I did my DNA and my wow. husband then got a cup made out of it. And it's like, he put on the other side, 100% Viking, <laughs> because everywhere that my families have come from, uh, we know Vikings went and spent a good amount of time. So, um, so there, I win, I guess. Okay. Gosh, I feel do, like do you ever look at? Do you ever look at a church and feel some inner desire to go and plunder it? I mean, do do you feel <laughs> there's evidence of this genetic heritage popping out here and there? <laughs> 
Yeah, well, um, I do have actually here, so I'll show you um, my, what my friend made me this postcard. So, you know. Fair enough. <laughs> work is for people who can't wonder, right? Although I will say my graduate work was uh, the opposite side of it. I, I wrote my dissertation about um, a monastery in England that was sacked by the Vikings and uh and destroyed for a period of time until it was rebuilt. So um, yeah, and I'm not even a religious person. I was raised Catholic, but I'm not a religious person, but I, I monastic life is, seems very intriguing to me. Mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah, I mean, we're all over, over the Vikings. Yeah, but really interesting to hear also what, you know, what gets people into this subject from, yeah. from whatever angle that is, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you probably know it as well, you, you, you teach, um, and, and CJ, you have too. It's like, you know, the interest in Vikings is just unbelievable. I mean, it's kind of off the charts and it doesn't seem to be like abating anytime soon. And we're very curious about that as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I do find, um, you know, quite a lot of students will come to the course because they've been watching Vikings drama. Uh, we have one in the UK. I don't know if it's been in America, The Last Kingdom. Um, oh, I love the Last Kingdom. Based on, yeah, based on the work of Bernard Cornwall, um, and also obviously, I think that's what tends to bring students in. Actually, more the TV games, but I'm, I'm aware obviously there are video games as well, like Assassin's Creed Valhalla and so on. Um, and I'm one of those people who doesn't watch TV, <laughs> so so I don't really know what what they've come with when they come to the classroom. But they tell me, so it's good. It's a two way learning process. I tell them about historical Vikings, and they tell me about dramatic Vikings. So we we both learn. Um, but it it there certainly is a lot of interest at the moment, and it's it is quite interesting, as you say, a phenomenon in itself because. Obviously, there was a huge enthusiasm for Vikings in the Victorian period, and that kind of made sense within sort of, you know, British imperialism at the time, that the Vikings were kind of like these, like, you know, glamorous ancestors who set out across the seas and plundered, and they were doing the same. Um, but, yeah, why why there is this renewed interest in Vikings? I don't know. I think it's partly that they seem unconventional. I think, I think people saying Anglo-Saxons are boring, but Vikings are fun. Do you know what I mean? And I think it's because they, they kind of represent kind of almost uh, the rebels of the Middle Ages. You know, they're, they're the sort of bad, bad boys of the, of the medieval period, but, but that seems to attract people to them. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I had just was grading a student paper yesterday who was asking questions about an article that they had to read. And he was like, I just don't understand. Like, so why are people so interested in in these kind of violent people? And I just wanted to write, do you know that phenomenon of like when you're driving by the accident alongside the road and you can't stop but help to look, you know, it's like people are just interested in that kind of stuff. You know, it's like it's for better or for worse. It's just yeah exactly but it's it's yeah there must be there must be many factors at play because honestly if you wanted to study the most violent century in in european history that's the 20th century by a long shot you know right. <laughs> so so maybe it's the way of the violence rather than the the actual bloodshed that that gets people involved maybe it's because the vikings told such good stories themselves the icelandic sagas are such a yeah. Yeah. fascinating source um, well and as a medievalist as a medievalist myself, I always say, you know, if, if there are still people with living memory, it's so-called news. It's not history. <laughs> it's not old enough. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed uh, Soren Sindebeck, who said, you know, it's with other historical people that fascinate us. You think of the popular ones, the Egyptians, and we think of the pharaohs, 
the Romans, we think of the emperors, right? And the thing about the Vikings is it's not, they're not kings, they're not emperors, they're people like you and mm-hmm. me who set out on an adventure. And that got the wheels turning for me because I do a lot of work. I, I'm on the, I write historical fiction novels and I'm I'm so deep into the hero's journey that it's not even funny. Mm-hmm. Where I'm actually, you know, like there, there's that marketing framework called the story brand. And I we, we recorded a video the other day where I explained why it's wrong. <laughs> like it's just a but but that 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 got me thinking a little bit of like huh that is interesting that you know as a historical population they unwittingly stumbled across this this trend that we're seeing today which is this you know there's there's a more of a there's an individual component an individualism that other historical people I don't think have or at least we don't see as well mm-hmm. And part of that, I think, is a projection of ours onto them in the past, of course. But the way that they were set up, because they're not kings and emperors and everything. I mean, some of them were, but most of these stories are just regular people. I think that's that's the lure where it's like, oh, they're just yeah. not. Yeah. I know what you're saying. It makes them relatable. Yeah. I think people can imagine themselves in the role of a Viking more easily than they could imagine themselves in the role of a pharaoh. And and mm-hmm. it's that imaginative link that that gets people into it. And then it allows people today to project all of their baggage onto Vikings and then make them what they will of them. And and it's fun yeah. to see. <laughs> it is. But, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that we, we've got that all through history, haven't we? So, you know, we, we mm-hmm. mentioned before about the Victorians and quite a lot of our image, our understanding of Vikings was really developed in, in late 19th century historiography. Um, but, I mean, every generation does rewrite history in its own own way. Uh, I, I think it's very hard to make people in, entirely objective. It's a pretense that we have as historians that we're entirely objective. But the events and culture of our own time will ask us to invite new questions of the past. Um, and that's a process that's been going on ever since people started writing history. Um, but it is interesting, yeah. Yes, that is really interesting. And I've written about that. I've done public talks about that as, you know, given conference papers about that, actually just sort of being intrigued with how we engage with the past and mm-hmm. how, you know, the Vikings, you know, this is actually another one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, but um, how the Vikings are, you know, they're just sort of ripe for it because of the issues with the sources. And whenever there's gaps in the sources, we're happy to pour ourselves right in there and um, and see ourselves. So, yeah. Um, I think that's a good point. I I think sometimes medieval history, because of that lack of the complete nature, and I, I remember actually that that used to irritate me a little bit because I'd like you know that the the past isn't just a playground for our fantasies. Um, you know that that where we do have this this lack in the sources, you, as you say, we just fill it with what we want. Um, so um, I, I guess maybe I've I've kind of become a little bit more tolerant and understanding of that with 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 time because I, I've spoken to a lot more people through my work who have that public interest in Vikings, which is diverges somewhat from the academic interest. And, you know, I don't think it's something we can stop, but it's something we, we should engage with and, and something that sometimes has a creative usage. It can help us think of new ways of looking at the past. But um but it's an ongoing dialogue and I find that quite interesting because millions of people will watch Vikings on TV. You know, thousands of people will learn about Vikings in a university, which means the pull of general understanding is more towards the popular end than the academic side. 
Yeah, in my class, my favorite example of it was a few years ago, I have, well, I still do this, but it, I had a student in particular who was so interested in the blood eagle ritual. And it, it was, you know, it's like, that was just super cool. And, and so then my students have to read Roberta Frank's article where she just debunks the whole thing. And he read it. And then he's like, yeah, I don't care. I still, 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 <laughs> still want to believe. It, yeah, yeah. it didn't shake him at all. Yeah. Like, yeah, I want the yeah. Vikings I want. So there we go. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I get that sometimes too in a kind of classroom situation. People will come in with the idea and they'll leave with the idea and nothing you can tell them in between will change that, you know. So. <laughs> well, so I want to start with um, actually a couple of quotes here and get into the Irish thing just a little bit yep. before we kind of go back to some of these other themes. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to mm -hmm. share screen and show... And these are, you know, if anybody in our audience is, you know, Viking savvy, these are old chestnuts and they know uh, what this is. Um, and so for those of you who aren't watching but listening, um, I will read them. But we've got two chronicle entries for mm -hmm. what are often seen as, quote unquote, the beginning of the Viking age in two different places, one in England and the other in Ireland. Um, and so in 793, of course, the very famous Lindisfarne attack, um, where we get this entry that says, quote, this year came dreadful forewarnings over the land of the Northumbrians, terrifying the people most woefully. These were immense sheets of light rushing through the air and whirlwind and whirlwinds and fiery dragons flying across the firmament. These tremendous tokens were soon followed by a great famine and not long after, on the sixth day before the Ides of January in the same year, the harrowing inroads of heathen men made lamentable havoc in the Church of God in Holy Island by rapine and slaughter. And then two years later, 795, the Annals of Ulster record the burning of Recru. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, the burning of Recru by the heathens and Ski was overwhelmed and laid waste. And so with those, what I would like to ask you is, how do we know with any certainty or why do we think that the heathens mentioned in those are Nordic Vikings? Um, I guess it's kind of uh, a combination of things so that the same the same groups, um, you know, years later, we, we get referred to as, as Danes and words which help link them more to Scandinavia. Um, uh, the locations of the raids suggests, and I think you know, there are references to them coming from the north, which again points to Scandinavia. Um, and also, you've got the archaeological evidence as well. So, uh, you know, a series of graves from Western Norway um, have goods which clearly come from an insular context. And if they're church metalwork, it's most likely that they were plundered rather than than bought legitimately um, and made their way across to Scandinavia. So, all of those things uh, link link these early raids uh with with these people we call the vikings um so yeah but it, it's also interesting to note that whilst you know lindisfarne in particular you know so many history documentaries like lindisfarne is the opening scene you know it's very very bloodthirsty the the dramatic contrast between pious monks and, and heathen vikings people love that um but there's increasing evidence from charters and letters and trade that there was actually more contact between Scandinavia and the insular world before 793 than we tended to know about. So they weren't 
quite the bolt from the blue that we tend to get sort of presented as in drama. Um, but clearly there is a shift in the nature of communication. And uh, there's this whole series of raids led across Europe from the 790s. I like how you call it communication. <laughs> like, I don't want to be on that wrong end of that communication. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, but it's amazing how quickly alliances develop, uh, you know, between between the Vikings. You know, in the 830s, they were allying with the Cornish uh, against the English. Um, uh, by 841 in Ireland, they're allying with the Irish. They they plunder a church together. Um, so the, the kind of us and them binaries or you know, Vikings turning up clearly was a was a bad thing but after 30 40 years of content they're like these guys could be really useful they can beat up our enemies let's ally with them you know so yeah yeah the irish story um you know i have i also have my students read a, an older article by sarah foot about violence mm -hmm. against christians right in the ninth century and she talks about Christians, you know, raiding and attacking other Christians and includes stories of the Irish and stuff. And so I've had students ask me, it's like, OK, well, then what is the difference between the Irish and the Vikings? Are they the same same kind of thing? And so I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah, well, I think uh, I think obviously the, the difference was was religion. Um, so, yes, Irish churches, because they were so politically important, were part and parcel of Irish warfare. We've got, you know, Irish churches putting armies in the field in the 780s, for example. Um, but when the Vikings turned up, they it wasn't just politics. They, they didn't care about shrines. They didn't care about vengeance saints. They weren't afraid of the Christian God. And that meant that the character of their attacks on churches do seem to have been of a slightly different nature. So um, sometimes when an Irish raid takes place on a church, they'll say that the raid goes as far as the door of the church. So in other words, they knew their limits, right? You can plunder the church settlement, but you don't trash shrines because we've read far too many stories about angry saints who nasty things will happen to you. So they stop at the door. Vikings, that door was nothing. They opened it. They plundered it. They plundered the shrines, you know. Um, that reference in 795 to Refru, uh, the ski um, is is actually sort of understood to actually be a reference to a shrine. Originally, people thought it was the Isle of Skye, but closer evaluation of the text. So they they plundered shrines, and that was what was shocking, because whilst churches were part of politics, people didn't tend to plunder shrines if they were Christian, but the Vikings did. They're the ultimate other who can't be controlled then because they yeah. don't. They don't play, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast. Another one of my students' readings is, uh, you know, a post that Guy Halsall did a number of years ago about, you know, mm -hmm. and the title of it is "Playing by Whose Rules" because they don't, they don't, they don't agree to the same playbook, right? And they're yeah. just they're mm -hmm. culturally different, and and so the Christians are more terrified of that because that, yeah. that they're very un unpredictable and uncontrollable. Yeah, absolutely, and also shows why they're quite keen as soon as there were political alliances and so on to try and convert the Vikings. You can see that with the English kings, you know, the kings of Wessex, when when they, you know, when Alfred the Great meets Guthrum in 878, it's like, right, you're getting baptised. We're, we're going to have to, like, assimilate you here, you know? So, um, so, yeah, I think that religious difference was quite striking for people at the time. So is that mainly the draw then for Vikings initially in Ireland? Was monasteries as well, or is there something else there? Well, it's definitely portable wells. Um, so the earliest raids do tend to follow that fairly classic pattern of isolated churches on island sites. So they could easily be attacked. They were centres of wealth, but they they weren't well defended. Um, 
We do hear in 798 that they're they're raiding cattle, would you believe? They gather a cattle tribute uh, from near Dublin. Um, so I don't know if they're just looking for supplies to, to restock their ships at that stage. Um, by the 830s, they're capturing high-status individuals um, and ransoming them back to their communities. Um, so um, you can start to see these stages of what begins as coastal attacks on, on vulnerable churches by the 830s is starting to get much more politically motivated. And by the 840s, we see them trying to make inroads into the Irish landscape using the river systems, maybe trying to conquer territory. They don't ever conquer a lot of territory in Ireland, but it looks like there's a series of campaigns where they're, they're trying to take over a swathe of Ireland. And do we know... Reminder, Go ahead, CJ. My understanding of, of Ireland, uh, it, it, at least in the very beginning of the Viking Age, is the the there were separate kingdoms that were infighting and insular, and the coasts were more or less clear, allowing the Vikings to come in, set up camp, right? So they're raiding perhaps these remote monasteries. But my understanding from what I've read uh, is is that it's the the Irish didn't really see them as a threat initially because they weren't really. They weren't going inland until the 40s. Then they start going inland, and then you have this issue where the Irish go, "Well, now wait a minute." You know, when you guys were just hanging on the coast, you know, because they were essentially mm -hmm. like the the these coastal mm -hmm. towns like Dublin, Cork, I believe mm -hmm. Limerick, Waterford, Wexford, all all supposedly founded by Viking mm -hmm. settlers. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason they were allowed to do that was because the Irish weren't on the coast. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean you're. Spot on that Ireland was divided into a multiplicity of different kingdoms. There's probably, you know, uh, at least 150 uh, different kingdoms operating in Ireland at this time, loosely organised under provincial overkingships. Um, but we do have some attacks. So uh, on Clonacht on Ireland's western coast in the second decade of the ninth century, and they're fighting battles against the local people. And some of the areas like that they attacked, whilst some of those first attacks on Ireland's, um, you know, like Inishboffin and Inishmurray, they are quite on the west coast of Ireland, they are quite remote. But as soon as they start attacking within the Dublin hinterland, these were really good agricultural lands. They would have been quite well populated. So I think it's a really good question you're posing there, is that how did the Vikings get away with founding these settlements without facing a huge amount of opposition um, from the Irish? And I think part of that is to do with the Viking strategy of where they located these settlements. So, for example, you know, uh, Dublin and Waterford, for example, two early Viking camps uh, that, that later flourished into cities. Um, they were founded on the boundaries, major provincial boundaries. They could play off one side against another and their settlement could, could kind of flourish. Um, and there's a possibility that one or two of the early camps were uh, founded through alliance with Irish kings. So that there's one on the Boyne at Rossnery where the Vikings were allied with Kinnaeth, who was the local king, and they set up a camp. And you know, putting you know these factors together, he might have been like, "Yeah, sure, you guys, if you're going to fight for me, you can you can have a camp there. That's not a problem." So there may have been some collusion, um, but yeah, uh, but it is difficult to know. You know, again, the Vikings being such. Um, you know, a, a disparate force and the Irish peoples not being unified politically. You know, I guess the decision whether Vikings were friend or foe was probably made, you know, on, on a local basis from kingdom to kingdom. And that maybe changed over time as well. But the Vikings were very good at kind of infiltrating the political system, I think. 
I think that's interesting to have that many kingdoms. And if, I mean, as I understand it, I think Ireland is, and I've been there, but I think it's only about maybe a landmass the size of our state of Oregon. And to think about it being divided up like that into so many little like petty kingdoms, basically, it sounds like that. I mean, it sounds to me like, you know, sort of street gangs and this kind of, you know, warfare that goes on between these kind of minor characters that, you know, a lot of them sort of fighting and scrapping for their little mm -hmm. sort of territory. But I, have you, I'm not sure whether you'll have uh, spoken to Mary Volante on your, on your podcast, but um, she's she's written on, on Vikings um, in, in Ireland um, and she's based at Appalachian State University. And uh, one of the things that Mary does is is she she uses exactly that analogy. So she, she sees Viking groups as being a bit like gangs. And like gangs, they have their turf, so they've got their spheres of influence in Irish territory. They don't directly control the territory, but they've kind of got an agreement and an understanding that that's their patch of activity and they don't want other Viking groups infringing on that so the Viking groups stop battling it out with each other so I, I think yeah your analysis there is, is really interesting um as a, as a way of maybe analyzing these these small group dynamics uh that were taking place at the time and you thought the mafia was only in Italy <laughs> yeah no Vikings were there first <laughs> yeah. I actually just wrote a post on my Substack about that answering an Italian scholar about um you know violence and honor codes and stuff in renaissance yes. italy and i'm like oh dear. like go yeah. back about 700 years the mm -hmm. vikings got there first if you want to talk about violence and honor coded societies mm -hmm. right yeah but it's also interesting you know, we could we could look at more modern phenomena like like the mafia and and you know but again because we do have these gaps in our sources but you can see things yeah like the honor code so important and and that applied you know in early 20th century sicily but it also applied in the viking age and of course there's so many differences across that broad frame of history but it's interesting also to note some of the motives and continuities and then shows us in some ways that whilst humans live in a very different world across the centuries we've, we've still got some essential attributes and motives that remain fairly constant that's my husband. He's always like, I think as human beings, we've peaked. <laughs> it's like we've gotten to the limits of what we're capable of as a species. And we pretty much just replay the same stories <laughs> over and over again. Who knows? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're, you know, we, we, we might think we're all terribly sophisticated, but we're still driven by, you know, hunger, <laughs> you know, desire, want to be loved, want to be accepted socially, you know, these things are kind of universal in human nature, you know, so yeah. Do we know with any certainty, I mean, I think it's easy probably to assume based on, you know, geographic proximity, but do we know like through the DNA or anything, are the most of the these Vikings, at least maybe in these early waves, are they of what, you know, what we would call Norwegian descent now, or are they coming from other places? Yeah, well, we, we to be honest, the, the DNA studies that have been done, uh, there's just not enough statistically to 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 make a conclusive argument on that. Um so the uh, assumption um, has been in relation to Ireland, partly looking at distribution of fines, is that, you know, they think the initial rates are probably led from, from what we would call Norway now, because they, they tend to come from the north, they've, so they've come maybe over the Scottish coast. Um, but that, you know, that by the mid-9th century that there are other groups of Vikings being involved and that this might involve Vikings more from, from Denmark. Um, but it's it it's not and again 
Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, you know, Vikings are said to come from Hordaland in the 790s, but then that's a, a later edition. And then later they're called Danes, but the term Danes seems very generic then and could refer to all sorts of Vikings. It just refers to speakers of Old Norse. So so it's it's really quite difficult to, to disentangle where individual groups of Vikings came from. Um, and often we try and do that with, with modern national labels. Like people want to know, were they Danes or were they Norwegians? Because it's a Dane or Norwegian who's asking the question and they want to know because that's part of their history. But of course, you know, um, these, these national boundaries of, of Denmark and Norway that we have now didn't, didn't apply in the Viking age. So, you know, uh, what would they have identified themselves at would, would probably be different. Um, so it's it's tricky, but no doubt, you know, increasing research, not just on DNA, but also an isotope analysis, which can tell us about the the, the geology of the place where somebody grew up, the, the drinking water uh, that, that, you know, formed their teeth. You know, we can study the isotopes in their in their dentine and work out perhaps what geographical area they grew up in. As more of that work gets done and refined, we, we that'd be really interesting. We might be able to say, well, this this group of Vikings that was active in Dublin in the uh, early 10th century, we're seeing a strong signal that suggests that a group of them came from such and such an area. And that would be nice, but we certainly can't do that at the moment with any precision. Yeah, I just, I mean, it begs the question of like, like I, with uh, the quotes or the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the chronicle entries right there, because it's like, you know, the old, this is the old phrase of, um, what is it? Not all Scandinavians were Vikings or not all Vikings were Scandinavians, right? And so, you know, and there's plenty of salty characters running around that world. And so, I mean, those heathens could be anybody, you know, so it's, yeah, it's sort of difficult to pin down, like exactly who is it we're talking about when we say Vikings in Ireland? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, the other thing is as well, we've, we've also got records in Irish Chronicles that Irish people were joining Vikings by the mid ninth century as well. Like, you know, these guys are getting rich quick, you know, um, you know, maybe, maybe we should join them, you know, I mean, it'd be, it, it would be interesting to uh, kind of consider that too. I mean, what, what kind of people would join the Vikings? You know, are there people that like, they've got nothing to lose? Uh, are they people who are maybe exiles from their own communities? You know, did, did Viking... It's a bit like maybe looking at early modern piracy. I mean, that's a comparison that, that Neil Price has made because, you know, if we look at like, um, say, Pirates of the Caribbean in the early modern period, like the, the they tended to be very diverse groups of people on those ships, but but they were the the misfits, dropouts, renegades, whatever, from all different places would, would, would join those groups. Um, so whilst, you know, I, I do think there is this link between Vikings and Scandinavian Vikings, you know, Scandinavian culture was was part of Viking culture. People could buy into that, and they could adopt elements of it. So we we do have by the the mid ninth century in Ireland these groups called Galgale, which basically means you know um, you know the, the foreign Irish, uh, the you know Irish foreigners. These these are people who are are mixture, uh, a group which is is defined by the fact that it combines. Gaul, which is the word they tend to use for Vikings, and, and Gael, which is the term they use for, for Irish. So it shows that, yeah, that these weren't hermetically sealed ethnic groups that they, you know, for practicality, if you're in a ship and, you know, some of your guys die from disease, some of them die in warfare, you need to replace your fighting force. And if you're a long way from Scandinavia, it's not like you can nip home and bring some more boys over. You're going to recruit locally. Um, and that happened yeah interesting 
later later on, or I don't I don't know how early this started, but there there are two different words for the Vikings, right? You have the Fingal, which is the mm-hmm. the light light foreigner I've seen it translated to. So Gaul mm-hmm. being foreigner, you said that's the what they used to describe the Vikings. Yeah, so Gaul is yeah, Gaul is a generic word for foreigner. Um, it, I think it originally comes from Gaul, so originally used for for sort of areas of modern France, um, but it becomes a, a generic term that means foreigner. Um, but from the 840s in Irish Chronicles, uh, they they start to use the word heathen less, which itself is quite interesting, and they use the word Gaul more uh, to to define Vikings. And then, exactly as you said. Um, they start to subdivide the the groups of Vikings, and there are two groups that emerge, which are sort of active in the late ninth and early tenth century. There's the the Fingal, which means the fair foreigners, and the Dufgal, which means the dark foreigners. And um, historically, people thought, well, this might be two different ethnic groups within the Vikings. So um, they thought, well, fair haired, maybe that's the Norwegians and the dark foreigners. The dark-haired Danish um, but obviously uh, not all Norwegians were blondes and not all Danes were dark-haired so it's a bit of a, an awkward uh, uh, thing. Um, there was an article written uh, by uh, a scholar David Dumbold and also Alfred Smith actually before him in the 1970s pointed out that that in, in Irish uh, sometimes in, in genealogical um, literature uh, and otherwise uh, Finn and Doof, uh, Fair and Dark are used to describe younger and, and older uh, branches. Um, so it could mean the older Vikings, so the, identified with groups that were first active in Ireland, and then this new group, uh, the, the, the new Vikings, if you like, uh, coming in, and that there's a tension between these two large groups. Now, the, the timing of that conflict is quite interesting because the arrival of the, the new Vikings um, is associated with the arrival of Ivar in legend, Ivar the Boneless, um, and his associates raiding in Ireland. So perhaps they are the dark foreigners. Mm, so this is, that's, yeah, later yeah. ninth century, right? So it's, yeah, so early on, we don't know where they're coming from. Presumably the first Vikings to show up in Ireland are from what is now Norway. Yeah, um, we, we we can make the, that assumption, but we can't be one hundred percent sure. Yeah, likely. And then, and then when is. you look at when you look at the the history of the the Brittany region of France with and their mm-hmm. experience of the Viking Age, mm-hmm. the presumption of say the Vikings who attacked Nantes. So the Chronicle of Nantes says that the Vikings mm-hmm. who attacked Nantes in eight forty three were Vestfaldingi. Uh, oh, or men from Vestfold. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We, and and that's been used as a as a basically a, a small breadcrumb trail to say, yeah. you know, maybe the Vikings who came to Brittany were coming around from mm. Ireland. And it's mm. interesting that you said in 798 they stopped they stopped in Ireland to grab cattle because in 799 they show up off the island of Dunleavy yes. to raid. Yes, and so it could be from there. Absolutely. What I, what I, yeah. What I what I like to say about the Vesvaldingi mentioned, by the way, in the in the Chronicle of Nantes, this is why I love this subject so much, and and I get a good I get a kick out of this. It tells me two things that it shows up in the Chronicle of Nantes. <laughs> number one, they're men from Vesvald, so they came from from what is now Norway. Okay, that's good information. Mm-hmm. Uh, number mm-hmm. two is they introduced themselves. Exactly. Yes. Hundred <laughs> percent. It's Somebody like they, yeah. You're not going to be like, where are you from before you kill somebody necessarily. There's some sort of conversation has happened. But that also maybe suggests the presence of 
interpreters. I mean, how do, how do you ask where are you from if if you speak Breton <laughs> and they speak Norse? Right. Well, so, North at the time would have been under Frankish control, and they did get a royal. So in 853, they got a a um, uh, permission to set up a, a marketplace on the Isle of Bitia, which is a small island next to the island of North. So mm -hmm. the, the the interactions were well established. They were talking to each other. I mean, that's yeah. I talk about that in my books. Like my main character, mm -hmm. Hastings, he's he's all over mm -hmm. the place talking to everybody. Mm -hmm. So this this is not an unknown quantity. I think what shocked them was the idea that oh well. Why did you plunder the city? I mean, we were doing fine, you know, trading. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that that is a really interesting example, and I I think as well that there is definitely crossover between Vikings who are active in northwest France and in the Irish Sea region. We see that again in the early tenth century. Um, it's Vikings from Brittany who go first to to Britain. They go to the River Severn, and then they cross over and they go to Waterford. So. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of research being done on that, but it's a really interesting topic. Um, but yeah, but definitely almost synchronous as well, actually. You've got this this appearance of more information. So in the 840s in Ireland, we, we're starting to get more of the names of Viking leaders. We're getting more evidence that they're, they're talking to each other. Um, so yeah, I, I, there is certainly more work to be done comparing the material that we have from from France with the material from from Ireland and England. So um, so yeah, if that's something you fancy pursuing, CJ, definitely uh, think yeah. it would be a great thing to do. Yeah. Well, that's the so the the book I'm writing right now, which is the fourth book in the series, takes place in mm -hmm. 847. 847 yeah. is an interesting year, because in the Annals of Saint Britain, they talk about three separate battles fought between a group of Vikings and yes. and the the Bretons who wind up losing all three battles. The Vikings win three battles and suddenly withdraw. And it's it's a mystery. It's like why why would they they were they were poised to invade the entire peninsula. They attacked immediately after the Bretons declared their independence from the Franks. So Nominoe, mm -hmm. the 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 Duke of Brittany, you know, firmly separated from Charles and, and it was done. And so they're finally free and the Vikings attacked and it's like, oh no, we're going to get invaded. And after three battles, the Vikings just, nope, we're done. We're gone. Uh, and at that, around that same time, now chronologically speaking, it's very hard to figure out how this mm -hmm. all played out within that year. But in 847, Vikings in Ireland lost three successive battles to the, to the Irish and were effectively expulsed from Ireland Right, um, having to come back later to to reassert their claim. So, is there a connection there? Right, is it that the supply lines were cut for the guys who were attacking Brittany, and they had to go back to Ireland to try and take back what they had lost during their absence? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it's definitely worth exploring. Um, and you know, this is this is something, uh, CJ, where your your knowledge is is definitely superior to mine because I I haven't looked a lot at Vikings in France at all. Um, but where my interests have been is interactions across the Irish Sea, where you can see, you know, the politics of what's happening in one island affects what the Vikings are doing in the other. So you can almost sort of see, you know, when when Ivar and his associates are active in England, uh, this is when there's a whole series of attacks on Viking bases in Ireland. And it's a bit like, well, the big guys left. So now the Irish are kind of rising up and trying to reclaim uh, lands that had been taken by the Vikings. Uh, but you've also obviously got that extended passage in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle where, you know, the armies are passing a across the English Channel as well, you know, and then there's like, you know, 
there's a shortage of food so then they cross back you know so so definitely there are kind of macro geographical factors here determining what biking armies do because they're so mobile you know we always think of the sea as a barrier for them it's the route way so you know they, they are they are being opportunistic um so i think that's a really really interesting point yeah well, being so close to Scandinavia and being so active in Ireland, I mean, it's interesting to me to think about just, you know, the long game, because I remember, CJ, when we were talking to Lesha Gardella last year, remember the question you asked him that, like, <laughs> busted us up about Poland um, a bit, where, you know, what is, he said, you said, like, like, what, how did the Vikings affect Poland or something like that? And he he said they didn't <laughs> just, just like that, like just deadpan, like they didn't. And, and so, I mean, what with Ireland, I mean, and again, I mean, a lot of people who maybe don't know a lot about the history of the Viking age, don't really understand exactly how active they were there. And um, I mean, and I've read, um, you know, and I tell my students that like Dublin became one of the largest slave markets in the Western European world. And so, um, they build something there, and yet it doesn't feel like there's as much maybe lasting Nordic history there as there is maybe in England or other places. So can you explain a little bit about how it sort of plays out over time? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of factors there. One is that the the settlement of Vikings in Ireland um, did end up being urban-focused. They didn't take over large swathes of territory. So unlike England, where, where Vikings took over large territories, which then became culturally Anglo-Scandinavian, uh, the, the zones of cultural influence were much more restricted within Ireland, where you can sort of see, you know, direct Viking control. So that that would limit the, the long-term impact of, of their culture um, in Ireland. And then the settlements that they did found, such as Dublin, Waterford, Limerick, um, these then became centres of English authority when the English took over Ireland. And so I think the, the Viking culture that was in those settlements got, got sort of eclipsed by English power. Um, and, you know, you, you almost see the Hiberno-Scandinavians being a, a sort of middle culture for a while. They're, they're neither they're neither Irish nor English, so they occupy a somewhat liminal uh, political position. And and as a spent force, you know, with no political power anymore, I think if you were Hiberno-Scandinavian, you just jumped one way or the other. You either became Irish or you you assimilated with the English. Um, and that meant that, that, you know, there wasn't a great cultural continuity from the Vikings in Ireland. It's not to say it disappeared entirely. I mean, you, you can look at ecclesiastical metalwork from Ireland in the 12th century, things like, you know, the Cross of Kong, and you can see Viking influenced ornament and the design. So it's still there, like bubbling away under the surface, but but it's not it's not politically active. It's, it's not um, a culture of identity in a way that it remains in, in other places. Succumbing to all of those centuries of English oppression that the Irish have become famous for. Right? Yeah, yeah, we, we English have quite a lot to apologise for. <laughs> so I'm just going to put my lights on. It's getting, uh, getting a little dark here in England. So mm -hmm. yeah, but appropriately yeah. <laughs> darkening as we talk about our bad history. Yeah. <laughs> uh. 
So, so um, I want to touch on then some of the other stuff that we mentioned towards the beginning, um, you know, a couple of things, then they're kind of related to, to that theme of, you know, sort of, you know, writing ourselves into the past. Mm. Um, but, you know, so one of them is the issue of the, the, the female warrior thing, the mm -hmm. shield maiden mm -hmm. thing, because again, you know, modern pop culture, I mean, that's a big, that's a big deal. And I just gave to one of my classes, the lecture on Viking age society yesterday and talking mm -hmm. about women in Viking age mm -hmm. society and to say, you know, for the for the most part, women weren't Vikings. It's not. It wasn't. You know, sort of a normal thing, at least as far as the mm -hmm. evidence that we have, right? Mm -hmm. And and one of the students, of course, immediately you know puts into the chat a frowny face. You know, it's like it's always such a letdown that there's no shield maidens. And I'm like, why do you need there to be shield maidens? Why? What does that say about us? You know, that it has to be that way. But so the whole controversy then with the the Burka warrior, um, in and 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 so I mean. Give us a little bit about, you know, what you've you know, you've written and talked about with relationship to that as far as, you know, yeah. what, what, what was going on there? I think that grave okay. like raises more questions than it answers, clearly. So, what yeah. Do you well, I suppose, okay, so one of the first things to say is the, the image of, of women warriors is something that, that you know, um, the Vikings were into as well. So, I mean, they, they appear in sagas um you know and you do get these uh like what they call these valkyrie brooches these images of armed women which which appear as ornaments so um so clearly the idea of 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 chicks with big swords is something that kind of got people animated in the viking age as well that's that's why that's why when these spines were discovered people were like oh there must be shield makings because we read about shield makings in the sagas uh but obviously um you know it, it's exceptional in a saga for a woman to have a military role. It's, it's not unknown. It's unusual. Uh, but they, there are examples. Um, but otherwise, it might have been more within the sphere of mythology and fantasy uh, than it was as any kind of historical reality. Um, this uh, grave at Berka is, is fascinating because, you know, from the 19th century, before the DNA work was done, it was hailed as you know the archetypal Viking warrior. And then, when they discovered that genetically, uh, was somebody who was born a woman in there, people were a bit like, "Yeah, but is it still a warrior if it's a woman?" Because we were calling it warrior before. Um, and the fact is, we we don't know. We we don't know uh, if the individual in that grave uh, was involved in fighting. Um, I mean, heavens! If if there was if there was much better preservation of the bones, you you could you can sometimes analyze bones for evidence of of things like uh, muscles, uh, which could or, or and obviously marks on bones that could indicate whether somebody had fought. Uh, but I, I don't think that was possible. Um, so we seem to have a woman who held a position of authority, um, and. We've got other examples in 10th century Europe of, of women who were in charge of military campaigns. Doesn't mean they actually were on the field fighting themselves, but they could be military strategists. They they could be generals. Uh, they could be leaders and queens. Um, but it, it's terribly controversial um, because, as you say, it pulls in two directions. On on the one side, it's people who, who want to believe there were lots of badass women with big swords running around in the Viking Age. And then there's the other group that wants to think that that women were entirely uh, stuck within the domestic sphere and didn't have any political role in the Viking Age. Um, and it's those two polar opposites which I think stirred up um, such a furore in, in the 
in the internet when this article came out, you know, because, um, you know, uh, yeah, it, as you said, as you suggested yourself, it said more about modern interests and preoccupations. Uh, and, you know, obviously touched the nerves, but it, it kind of actually is it's scary in highlighting how much of modern political discourse is subtly influenced by what we think happened in the past, you know? Um, you know, uh, so, you know, in, in maybe anti-feminist rhetoric, you know, women knew their place. Women did what they were told in history. Women just stayed at home and they would just they just did child rearing and baking. And and as soon as you come out with examples of women who didn't just do that, that upsets people. Why, why should that upset people? You know, um, so I find it very interesting. Yeah, I, I as well. I and I think. You know, it's such a modern, you know, the disappointment to me, I even said to my students yesterday, like, it's such a modern thing, right? Why should we be disappointed that this woman was primarily involved in maintaining the household and the farm and, you know, making the food and making the clothing and all of that stuff? It's like, do you have any idea how important that is for the survival of the community? They could not make it Mm -hmm. without those domestic contributions of, you know, yeah, many, many, many women. And so it's sort of this idea. And I think probably the 19th century is to blame usually, as always, <laughs> like for these shifts in attitudes about, you know, sort of the, the cult of domesticity, you know, and then give something, you know, for feminists to sort of chafe mm-hmm. against and that kind of relegation. But it's like, you know, to my mind, it's like if I'm talking to somebody a thousand years ago, they wouldn't even really understand that whole sort of feminist mindset in that regard. It's like, you know, no, this is just what we do because, you know, we all need to eat and live to see another day. And this is what we have to do. Um, I, you know, I just it seems to me now that's a form of power. It may not be the sword wielding kind that mm. you like because that's more sexy for mm-hmm. some reason. Mm-hmm. But that to me mm-hmm. is real mm-hmm. is real power. But we just don't like to see it or acknowledge it uh, in the modern era. Yeah, I mean, there's been some really good work done recently on 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 uh, women in the Viking Age as producers of textiles, but showing how important that was. Textiles were a currency. Um, and, you know, also textiles had a political currency as well, like gifts of embroidered silk in the Middle Ages were, were high-end diplomatic gifts. Um, so I think these these tasks, which, you know, you know, may be seen as domestic, uh, were were tasks that were imbued with power. But but you know, but I we also see plenty in in sagas. Um uh, and in other areas as well, chronicles of, of women having political agency. So having a domestic role didn't mean that you you couldn't be involved in decision making. And I think you're right that maybe maybe because of our own cultural inheritance, domestic tasks tend to be seen as insignificant. Um, whereas I think, as you're suggesting, in in the Viking Age, you know. Being a being, I mean, out of the deep mind is, you know, great figure in saga. You know, she she was she was a woman who offered great hospitality. You know, the evening she dies, she arranges a feast and she wants to make sure everybody is well looked after. And then she goes off and sort of quietly dies, knowing her in her final thoughts were, I pulled off a really good feast there. Feasting was was so important for political alliances, political negotiations. She wasn't just, you know, a stay at home cook. Right. She was more than that. Um, so I think it is quite interesting to 
to evaluate some of these things and ask those questions because it yeah we we don't want to program too many of our own assumptions onto the past we we have to keep asking new questions of this material so um so it's exciting when something like the Berker grave turns up to raise lots of questions um but it is almost a shame that the debate can get quite vitriolic and polarized yeah i think with uh with that i mean it's so interesting i mean to me it you know it, it speaks, unfortunately, to kind of, you know, turf warfare is a little bit. Also, we're talking about Vikings and, you know, sort of gangs and turf, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, you, you spend a lot of your career maybe sort of focused on a particular area and then you probably, you know, feel protective of it a little bit, you know, and don't want to concede that maybe there's, you know, some new interpretations or some new evidence mm -hmm. come mm -hmm. to light or, you know, and all of that. But I mean, for me, I, I I am always wary of and like to caution my students about that a binary thinking because, you know, come on, most things in life are not this or this. Everything really happens in the gray middle and is always more nuanced and complex than people are willing to concede. But human beings tend to like black or white, right or wrong. You know, it just makes things very clean and very clear, but that's not reality. No, and I, I agree with you. The messy reality is 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 where it's at. Um, but it, but yeah, but I think as, as as we've kind of already said, I think you know the way that the the Middle Ages becomes kind of fantasized or fetishized is that we 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 tend to assume everything was simple in the past, everything worked in these simple binaries, and then you know things got messy. And maybe that's the that that alleged simplicity of the Middle Ages is something that people find attractive. But when you actually really look at the Middle Ages, you're like yeah, it was pretty messy back then too, you know? So, yeah. Pretty violent. I'm surprised there's, uh, because the this, the Birka warrior grave made such a splash. And then there's mm -hmm. another one that came out that was a grave of, what was it? Somebody who had, what's that chromosomal disorder where you have an extra yeah. X, I think, or whatnot. And, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. then you start getting, oh gosh, what is, somebody help me. I'm yeah, I, I I know the one you mean. It's it's where yeah. you you need to conform to the simple XX or XY. Um, so you're right. you're kind of genetically intersex, and you can have depends very much manifestation within that that genetic presentation whether your characteristics may skew male or female. Um, so I think that was a uh, yeah. I I know exactly what you're talking about, but I cannot remember the details. Yeah. Um, but I think that was that not another figure who was. With, yeah. with weapon yeah yeah i just looked it up i wrote a blog about it back in 2021 okay. thinking this is, mm -hmm. i was like this is going to be the next thing that's going to make people angry <laughs> <laughs> and so so here's the title that i gave the article too which is is a bit you know i mean i was stoking the fire but you know <laughs> um but as this recent study suggests a grave in suontaka finland Contained a gender non-binary Viking warrior, so I thought that that's gonna that's gonna rouse a few people. That's gonna yeah, you know, <laughs> feelings. But it, it didn't it didn't go anywhere. So I wonder what it is that that the Birka warrior had that this one just didn't, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think the thing that I, I think if um if you'd said a transgender Viking, that would have probably got people more upset because I think when they were chromosomally intersex. That was kind of scientifically what they were. You couldn't really argue with that. Um, I think with the with the with the Berker one, it was because she was, you know, biologically a woman, uh, and that was that was the 
so yeah I think the other one was probably just a bit too complicated for people to really get their head around with with the with the chromosomal kind of xxy thing going on there uh, but, but this the, the Berker one offered more clear-cut uh, territory to fight over I think you know um Right. Yeah. And, the, and this one was this one was interesting. So it's the it's they think it was Kleinfelter syndrome. So it's men born mm -hmm. with Kleinfelter syndrome have an extra X chromosome. Most 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 don't have any symptoms. Some develop uh, feminine features such as gynecomastia, hairlessness, etc. Um, and then this person was buried with female grave goods. As the so then they so this person in particular from this grave was not uh evident evidently did not conform to a strictly male image or mm. what so so this brings up a good, yeah. a good point too like you know this person was buried with female grade goods did they choose that or was that the community that said well you know he, well, he had uh mm. huge tracts of land so let's give him some female stuff to bury him with you know <laughs> The dead don't bury themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> it, well, exactly. That that's it, and that that is interesting because, in a way, that actually shows where there's that divergence between, you know, biological sex and the gendering of the grave goods. It, it, that couldn't have just been a personal choice if the if the community didn't actually then respect that and follow through. And you know, there there are there are other examples. It's not that there's only these two graves. You know, there. So, I mean, people are more interested in, you know, uh, <laughs> female grace weapons. Obviously, that's something that Lejek has, has written about. Um, you, you've talked to before. Um, but, you know, there are examples in other times and places as well, like an early society where we've got a grave which seems to contain a man, but it's got quite feminine items in. Um, but, you know, again, that that's really, what people get so upset about that. And I mean, you know, it's not, it's not that, it's not that, um, okay, so my stepdad was in the Merchant Navy. When you're in the Merchant Navy, you have to learn to sew because you've got to repair your own stuff whilst you're on a ship, right? So so being at sea doing manly stuff doesn't mean that you can't do a task, which we tend to culturally think is feminine, which is sewing, um, because you've got to, because that's the necessity of the work you're doing. You know, you've got to keep your kit maintained. You've got to be able to mend a sail. You know, uh, you don't want holes in your socks when you're when you're kind of like you know shoes are full of water and it's cold at sea. So, uh, so people people learn these other skills. So, um, so you know, there might just be an element of practicality or preference, and, and maybe suggested that people, you know, weren't always so wound up by these gender binaries as as we seem to be. Um, so, but it yeah, it just definitely creates food for debate. Um, it shows that this is this is clearly an issue which our contemporary society is worried about uh, and bothered about that we get so angry about it not conforming to our expectations in the past. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Really excellent. You know that, that we need them to conform, and somehow I think, which I think I shared the article that I wrote uh, with you about this, where it's like we're almost sort of, you know, or some people I should say, is kind of looking for validation, right? Like, well, they did it, so we we must be right. We must be on the right track, or something. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because I have a lot of mm -hmm. students who will mm -hmm. look at some of the stuff that with these graves and. Um, and, you know, and, and say, say, like, see proof of transgenderism in the Viking age and kind of like, well, hang on, you know, that's a, that's a, a, a modern 
conception that probably, you know, either they wouldn't know anything about or mean something different, uh, likely, because we live in a different context and are thinking about these things in a different way. Mm -hmm. I was just giving giving a public talk last mm. month. We were talking about, um, you, you know, violence and warfare and whatever in the Viking age. And this woman, you know, spoke up and said, yeah, that's toxic masculinity. And I'm like, yeah, they, they would have no idea what you're talking about. You know, like the, the whole mode of being is, you know, what mm -hmm. we, they would consider toxic mm -hmm. or what we would mm -hmm. consider maybe toxic masculinity. Yeah. But they, they're not seeing that as mm -hmm. a somewhat pejorative thing. Like it seems to be, you know, thought of mm -hmm. now. Um, mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it's, just, it's, it's sort of this lost in translation kind of thing. Right. Except for we want to just yeah. sort of implant these mm. things back to those people. Exactly. And, and, you know, how we interpret these things, I mean, it, you know, it, it is clear through all different cultures and times that there, there have been men who've passed as women and women who've passed as men, okay? There, there are plenty of historical examples. Mm. We don't know what motivated that, you know, um, and that's that's what we just can't tell. That's what the archaeological record will, will never tell us. Um and and that's where you know the the risk of of modern debates can can create baggage in interpreting that. I mean, it, it can also point to ways of thinking about things that we we haven't necessarily considered before. Um, but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and I you know I, I can tell this is something that frustrates you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, I just sort of like you know, like I'm always hammering on with my classes, like historical context matters. Let's let those people live in their context and mm -hmm. not sort of mm -hmm. impose ours on mm -hmm. them. Because then, for me, like sort of recognizing certain things that you see, think you see there. I mean, then it's very much, you know, not too far of a step to then, you know, kind of adopt this sort of righteous stance of thinking then we have the, the ability or the, the responsibility or whatever to judge those people for having mm -hmm. been this way or that. And again, like you said, not conforming with our expectations of them. And it's kind of like, okay, that's arrogant. You know, that's just... It is, but, but it's also human nature. We we can't help judge. Like, like this is just what humans do. We're so... We're, we're on the one hand, we're very nosy. I mean, this is, history's great if you're nosy. You get to put your nose in all sorts of people's business. Um, but, but we can't help judging. And I feel as well, you know, when you talk about the binaries of good and evil, you know, we evaluate figures in the past. And, and obviously, you know, okay, sometimes it gets pretty clear cut. Um, but, but we almost want to have these ethical and moral debates about, about people who lived hundreds or thousands of years ago. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that's ever going to stop. Right. I just I just think that that's that's what we do. Uh, and and but it, it, it isn't. I mean, you know, as you say, exactly. So that that's that's what people do as historians. We should be trying to understand these people, not judge these people um, because they are they are interesting. Uh, but at the same time, I, I just think it, it's unfortunate trait in human nature. But 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 we love judging others, you know, it's <laughs> just like you know, that, that's what the Internet is full of. isn't it? as soon as somebody says anything like there's a whole crowd of people out there judging them for what they've just said and providing counter arguments. You know, it's it's uh, it's just, um, yeah, it's what it's what makes people tick. And I don't know whether that's because judging others is, is a way of uh, making us feel better about ourselves or, or why. Um, but I, yeah, I, I know I I can see that this yeah it's it's a, on the one hand it's something that can be frustrating, but at the same time, and I'm sure you know if you're public facing and you're talking to people, you, you can see that yeah, like you say, there's a there's a brick wall there, you know that that you can't actually stop people having those ideas, um, you know, but but you can maybe 
rationalize with them to to see things from a different perspective as well yeah i mean because i i guess too i think that with the way like you're saying the internet i mean social media i mean i mean it's all over like at least in the western world i mean this is kind of causing problems for people you know more and more polarization and all of that and Mm -hmm. so i guess it's my feeble attempt you know of using the past as a way to just get people to just be a little bit gentler and kinder um, you know Mm -hmm. and uh Mm -hmm. and not not be so quick to be just judgmental and nasty yes yeah exactly well i i really admire that i like i like that i think that you could say that yeah and in a yeah if and i think you know i think I think empathy is an important trait to be a historian because you have to try and imagine what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. And if you can teach empathy through teaching history, then we're kind of all better off for each other. Do you know what I mean? If if we can all just understand each other as human beings a little better, then surely that would address quite a lot of problems in the world. So, yeah, we should all go off and study history more, basically. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's the, the empathy piece is funny, you know, the the... A modern example. This happened with me. Is uh, have you seen that show uh, Cops? Very popular here in the United States. It's it's ridiculous. It's so it's if camera crew falls around police officers as they go on mm-hmm. calls and so forth. And and I'd never watched the show really. And a couple of years ago, I, somebody introduced me to the show, and I started watching. And and you know, before I was like, oh, you know, we have too many police shootings. You know, I was kind of like, uh, then I watched that show, and then I see it, and I was like, I'm. And then after that, I came away thinking, I'm surprised there aren't more police shootings <laughs> because it, they're constantly thrust into these ultra stressful environments with so many moving parts. I'm like, I wouldn't be able to handle. I would, I'd be like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? so having that empathy of like trying to put yourself in in shoes. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of judging the past, though, I, I did want to say. And of course, I'm going to go here to this to this level, but somebody does this very well, which is kind of a fun aha for audiences. Is the, the show Star Trek? Whenever they come back to the the 20th or 21st century, and they and and you'll always have members looking around, going, "How they behave is so strange." But then they'll like <laughs> stop themselves and be like, "Wait, no, we can't judge them." you know, by our standards, this was a different time. Like they do that. And they do that in so many different episodes. It's hilarious. And I, I always think of that, you know, when we're talking yeah. about this, it's like, yeah, if we were transported back to the Viking age, we would be horrified by their way of life. But then we'd have to pause and say, you know, this isn't us, this is them. This is their context, you know, and it's so a Star Trek always, always, you know, was at the forefront of that, that idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So yeah. the other the other thing that I have my students read that I mentioned that you wrote on or commented on is um, so the the issue of ethnicity and the issue mm-hmm. of, you know, now white supremacist groups for, you know, quite a long time now, probably since the Nazis sort of did this, you know, 100 years ago, um, latching on to, you know, Nordic supremacy and master race theory and all of that. I mean, and now we've got hard sciences that are telling us some very interesting things about the ethnic and genetic makeup of you know the the vikings so can you speak to that a little bit as far as you know what i know the the title of that it was a piece that you wrote in the conversation they weren't right yeah yeah i was so yeah so it was basically yeah so the yeah the popularity of of vikings amongst far-right political groups is is partly premised on this idea of of racial purity but also racial supremacy um and as you say that was something that was really became popularized um in the 1930s but actually has has much longer roots really back to the the enlightenment period when um you know the the growing political 
hubs in the world were based in Northern Europe and, and the sort of growth of the British Empire. And whilst, you know, the origins of European civilization had tended to be seen as the Mediterranean, you know, the, the cultures of Greece and Rome, People like Montesquieu, who was writing in the late 18th century, was arguing, but no, there must have been a northern civilization because we're the best, you know, and, and there must be a logic for this. So, so they started to come up with these theories of, of, of northern supremacy. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, and that, that took hold because there was a fertile seedbed of the time of, of you know, the way that, as I say, the, the Victorians really embraced Viking ancestry uh, because it kind of helped kind of say, well, this this is why we're the people traveling all over the world, conquering peoples, because we're descended from the Vikings and they did that first, you know. Um, and yeah, so, but you can see that that was created at the time to kind of fill a need for people to justify what they were doing and to also hold themselves up as special. And I think, you know, that's unfortunately, you know, that that is still the, the need among some of these white supremacist groups now is they still want to hold themselves up as being special and so they are drawing on 18th and 19th century racial theories which have long been debunked by scientists um but but still drawing on them um and there's a romanticism about the viking age as well which you know the victorians developed so well um that makes the viking seem a particularly alluring group uh, to affiliate yourself to if, if you're inclined that way. But the point of the article was really to say, yeah, this is this is 19th century fantasy, not 10th century reality, because the evidence that we've got of Vikings is that they were defined by their mobility and their cultural interaction. So actually the Vikings were, you know, diverse groups they they were you know they were trading in the middle east for goodness sake we've got this massive amount of dirhams that are flowed that, that reflect these interactions and and in other words yeah the vikings don't don't fit the simple box that that people are wanting to put themselves into and again that upsets people but i'm sorry it's 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 so well historically evidenced and and then the genetic study that came out a couple of years later kind of almost verified that and it's just you know it's again it's it's having to show people the messy realities of medieval life that don't fit with the fantasy version they have in their head yeah when i teach about the these modern conceptions of vikings and we talk about this i mean i it's very interesting to me and especially you know students who maybe are on the on the younger side who who don't even um know about even the nazi connection mm -hmm. right and, mm -hmm. and what mm -hmm. happened there and mm -hmm. so um, you know, you tell them about that and then about, you know, a lot of the groups that are, you know, still kind of, you know, latched on to that. And then and then they'll say to me, well, so then why don't we just teach those groups the real history? And I said, well, so I'm talking about it with you. And so I try, you know, to get the message out, you know, based on the science that we now know and what we know about the Middle Ages. Um, and I said, but, you know, for my money, probably it's 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 a matter of this you know talk about these human predilections for things that you do with the past i mean cherry picking the past is always something that people do right i mean you just sort of pick the pieces that sort of fit with what you want it to be and it's like when you are a group like maybe some of these groups are you have a particular narrative and the whole you know sort of foundation of your group is built on this thing right so mm -hmm. 
I, I, I'm imagining that for many of them, well, let me tell you about the real history, you know, and they're mm -hmm. just going to be like, mm -hmm. I don't need to know that because, you know, it's going to dismantle everything we are here. And that's not the point, you know? Yeah, that, that you'd be you'd be some kind of conspiracy against them that, you know, somehow modern academics have a conspiracy and, and we're changing the past. That's what they tend to say as well. That's because they've latched on to the, the 19th century and, and, and the early 20th century version of the past and they they don't want you know and of course the, the body of research that has been done over the last hundred years in the middle ages is incredible mm -hmm. you know so much more information sources available that people didn't know exist before the way that archaeology has shed so much new light on it and yeah they just kind of mentally have closed the doors to that because they don't want the view that they have to be to be harmed um because it's it's how they justify it's how they justify the way they think um so, yeah, but I mean, you know, really interesting to discuss this with you. Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate that it's been co-opted, you know, because like uh, here in Oregon, at least, you know, if, I, if I'm interacting with people in public and I see a tattoo of a Valknut or a Thor's <laughs> hammer or something, uh I just I just know instinctively like disengage like <laughs> because it, oh. they it's well it's it's because and i learned the hard way that you know you, the the people who go to that that extreme i'll call it to to represent certain iconography from from that is supposed allegedly viking i think the Vulcan is a controversial one it's on a couple of stones here but it's not you know it's meaning is uncertain etc but but just somebody who's going to go to that extreme i just i just know that they're going to be either of that group right i mean we have a, a, a i'm in bend oregon and we only need to go 10 miles east for to run into a large multi dozens of of acres neo-nazi compound and those people all come into town you know and and mm -hmm. and unfortunately a lot of them are former military a lot of them, and they're dangerous people you know they're mm -hmm. and so you just it it's it's that um and that co-opting of of yeah the the norse imagery is always just um unfortunate right because i i do enjoy this topic so often and then and yeah. then i do get introduced to people you know like oh you uh, oh he's look at christoph he writes books about vikings this historian on the vikings then they'll come up and give me their their 10 minute spiel on you know diversion why, yeah, yeah why hitler yeah. should have won the war and i'm just like how did yeah. we get there <laughs> but i tell you what gives me hope in all this though actually because um because there is this popularity of of vikings obviously there's this worry that you know it's being co-opted to some dark ends but um my work in england uh, is I've, I've dealt quite a lot with reenactors here you know people who dress up as vikings as weekends and of course you know they love it they love the immersiveness of that but generally i found talking to them that they are they are passionate they want to know the truth they are inclusive you know they 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 love the vikings in a different way than academics because they are more the hands-on they want to know how something was made and they they want to you know they want to to uh, you know, sleep in a Viking ten, you know, and things like that. But it, but it, it's, it's, you know, because sometimes, you know, we 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 hear about the worst ways that it's sort of adopted. But it's nice to know that there is this groundswell of people who are genuinely interested, but for the right ways. Yeah, maybe there's a little bit of fantasy too. You know, they all have their like their Viking name, and you know, they they want to kind of you know maybe imagine themselves as being a great warlord or something in the Viking age. So they're, they're playing Vikings, but they're doing it with a sincerity and desire for a historical integrity that kind of gives me hope 
Do you know what I mean? I, I would like to think that they'll they'll be the the bridge between the academics and the extremists. You know, that that they're the ones that can help draw people away from the the crazy views into Vikings are fun, but you don't have to you don't have to co-opt them to some some weird political agenda. You, you know, so yeah. Yeah, there's nice little pockets. There's a group um, locally here in Portland where I am. So I'm about four hours or so away from where CJ is in Central Oregon, and um, we've got you know many people in the Pacific Northwest where we are who have Scandinavian heritage, and there are groups that you know. So there, there are these cultural heritage organizations mm -hmm. that you mm -hmm. know are celebrating Scandinavian heritage, and you know many of them you know tend to be you know a little bit on the older side. And so I was teaching this class, a truncated version of my Viking class, um, and you know a great group of people, and I had worn. Um, uh, one of my former students from university made me a little Thor's hammer necklace um, just as a gift, just, you know, and she didn't know anything, you know, I'm not, I'm not a part of heathenism or whatever, you know, it's just mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. you're teaching about Vikings here, here's this little gift. Yeah. So I wore mm -hmm. it there. And, you know, there were other women who are also had them on and, you know, women who were, again, you know, not 25. And and so it was like, OK, well, this is nice. I feel comfortable here because it's like you people are here. You know, you you either were born in Scandinavia and your families emigrated here or maybe your parents were born in Scandinavia and you came here and you're just very interested in your cultural inheritance. And I can have on a Thor's hammer like you do. And I know you're not going to mistake me for a neo-Nazi. <laughs> so. So, there's all the, yeah there's it's a shame isn't it some yeah. of these symbols are now tainted painted by negative association um yeah well cj do you have anything else to add i'm going to ask our existential question as as our final final question so we can be mindful of time I don't know the yeah. I mean, Vikings in Ireland is kind of where I'm latched onto for today, and I just I could go on for for days. I have I have all the questions, but <laughs> we can... it's it's honestly it's so much fun talking to you both because you know you 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 know stuff, right? I feel I could learn so much from just sitting and talking to you both for ages. So yeah. Well, we always like to kind of, well, not maybe always, but definitely sometimes like to ask, um, you know, when we talk about things like Vikings in Ireland and this history that, you know, is a long time ago. Um, but other stuff, you know, we've kind of made relevant to uh, our modern times here as we've talked about these things. But um, I, I do kind of like to sort of ponder as a historian, you know, why does or should any of this history matter? You know, why should people care about what Vikings did in Ireland? <laughs> that is a big question, isn't it? Um, well, uh, I believe we should study history uh, in, regardless of, of time and context, because history is basically studying humans in, in another place and time. Uh, it, it's a laboratory for studying human action and, and learning to understand people better, which is the point about empathy before. You know, I think it's important that we understand how, how people work. Um, and history is one way to do that. Um, the reason I think for, for um, you know, in Ireland, why would you study Vikings? You know, inevitably, people tend to be interested in history that somehow relates to themselves or, or, or things they know. Um, and whilst that isn't always the case, for example, you know, what, what role do Vikings play within the national story of Ireland will, will mean a lot to a lot of people 
uh, in Ireland and and it's good to have that discussion and you know it's good to challenge some of those stereotypes you know so um, in in Irish historiography traditionally you know the Vikings were they were heathen baddies against you know which great Irish kings defeated in battle like Brian Broom we can have a whole another hour about the Battle of Clontarf which is like the biggest battle between the Vikings and the Irish um, and you know again by um, studying the sources they're great the sources are fun you know great sagas brilliant material um so you can study it for its own enjoyment but it also highlights exactly what what you were saying terry about the the messy realities that these simple binaries that we've imposed on the past don't actually apply and i think it's good for us to broaden our mental horizons by understanding those things more so some of it's to do with heritage um, and on national histories. And, and some of it is just about getting a better understanding of what makes humans tick at the end of the day. Spoken like a true historian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if we can maybe beg your indulgence to like come back at some point in the future, and we'll promise to stick to Ireland so that CJ can get all his questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, uh, we missed I, so many things. I had the, I had the, what's it called? The, the, uh, there's, there's rare Frankish coins that were discovered in, in mm -hmm. Ireland that are of interest. I, I was curious to know if you, if you knew anything on those or, uh, I know it's ongoing ongoing research and, and there's yeah and I, well well now you yeah. post that question uh when, when we uh when we next chat I'll, I'll have a look at which which the silver hoards in ireland we've got we've got i know we've got some some um coins from uh normandy um in ireland in the early 11th century which is quite interesting uh we've even got a few pre-viking frankish coins as well one was found in maryborough county leash which i think dates from the 7th or 8th century so yeah no that's uh links between um France and Ireland in the Viking Age would, would be a good a good topic. Um, so yeah, no, I would I'd be delighted to chat to you both again. But as I say, I I you know I feel normally with these kind of interviews or when when I'm doing things, it's it's you know maybe if it's something media related, it's somebody who doesn't really know and they're wanting to find out. But when I'm talking to you both, I feel I've got as much I can learn from you guys as you could learn from me, and that's really nice. So yeah. We're Viking nerds. That's why we started this whole thing, right? CJ? Yeah. So we, just, we just get our Viking out of our system periodically. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, well, we'll look forward to that. That will be awesome to have you come back. So it, this has been a great pleasure. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah.